G'day and welcome to the final episode of Occupied's Best Of series. Uh, as you know, I'm on leave for December, so we're releasing these episodes that were voted by you guys, the listeners, as your favorite episodes from all of the episodes that I've put out so far. This final one, I, I believe one of the best for last. Uh, it's episode way back in episode 11, Online Technology for Occupational Therapy, my interview with the one, the only, Dr. Anita Hamilton. Uh, Anita, on terms of me personally, has had the most profound impact on my career as an occupational therapist more than just about anyone I, I can possibly think of. Uh, I first met Anita back in the day when she was involved with the OT for OT group who used to run an online conference and I got to know her through that uh, by essentially inviting myself along to, to help out and get involved with those guys. She then invited me to present with her and uh, another clinician uh, at my very first conference, which was a state conference in Cairns in Queensland. We presented on uh, online technologies and uh, we're trying to essentially mitigate some of the barriers that a lot of people at the time, this was 2012, uh, were holding as the reasons why they weren't engaging with social media for, on a professional front. At that same conference, she volunteered me to be the social media coordinator for our next national conference, which was 2013 in Adelaide, a job which I held for the six years following that uh, and, and helped develop that for Occupational Therapy Australia. Uh, in the meantime, I was doing that. We had various other projects together. She's always been a phenomenal mentor for me, even more so with me now moving into academia. She, We've had weekend chats for hours and late night messages when I've needed advice on things. She's always there when I need her. She is an absolutely phenomenal human, the most bubbly and most friendly and most happy person you'll generally ever ever meet always stands out in a conference crowd because she's always laughing so hopefully you guys get as much out of this episode as i do my friend dr anita hamilton g'day and welcome to occupied i am super pumped about this episode because i got to sit down with a good friend of mine and one of the most amazing humans that you will ever meet Dr. Anita Hamilton. Anita works at the University of the Sunshine Coast and is part of a group that really led from the front OTs getting involved in online technology. Like you don't know what you don't know until you need to know it, and that's the problem. And I actually wrote a reflection yesterday about that for second years. Cause and I said that, yeah, that I just that, you know, we do all this work to to create this scaffolded curriculum and we we do we do a lot of work behind the scenes and we try to make it explicit but it's not until the assessments that the students come up against they don't know what they don't know until they need to know it and then they get there's kind of three negative reactions one is um well anger 
um, well, one's stress. They get really stressed that um, they're not going to know it in enough time. Anger. Um, you should have told me this earlier. I shouldn't have to be asking this now. You should have already taught me this. And then there's overwhelm. I don't know enough and I never will. And those three things mean that students um, are really, they can't, they're coming into class really angry and, and negative and frustrated and then they kind of send accusatory messages to the staff, which means the staff then get a bit defensive and like, well, we've told you before. And so it then doesn't, it can't, no one's going to win at this point. <laughs> so, so we're at that point in our, in our second year course. So I wrote that reflection yesterday just in the discussion board and just titled it, You Don't Know What You Don't Know Until You Need to Know It. And and then I talked about that process and and that it's okay. And I actually said, what do I do when I get into this situation? And, um, you know, because we're all learners. And I said, well, I kind of figure out, well, what, what do I need to know? What do I already know? What's the first step? <laughs> and then take it from there. So, like, break it right down to something that's achievable. And then, yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping, um, and I talked about being interdependent, that we aren't on our own and that asking really good questions is a good idea and that I know I'm one of those people that doesn't like to show people I don't know something, so therefore I don't ask questions and that's a problem. And so there could be other people in that boat too. See, I'm the opposite. I'll ask a thousand questions. Even if I think I do know, it's more confirmatory. I'll still keep asking questions until... They yeah. pretty much say it the way that I'm thinking it so that, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I don't know, from my experience, even just an awareness that that is normal to me helps. Yeah. Like the fact that, you know, people have these three reactions and, yeah, okay, I relate to one of those. When I am in that situation, then I'm like, okay, this is normal. I can sort of deal with it better. I can sit with the the discomfort of not knowing or being a bit lost or whatever it is better knowing that this is a normal part of the process of you know learning yeah yeah it's really uncomfortable learning you're not learning if you're not uncomfortable good Mm. i don't know how (laughs) i still don't know how i did it for however many years back when i did my undergrad because i'm like i don't Mm. remember being super uncomfortable i remember being stressed yeah. But you so don't. You and again, it was again because I didn't know that this is the process. So I don't yeah. think about it like that. So now in yeah. hindsight, I'm like, yeah, I was pretty much uncomfortable for four years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's the other side of it is that um, you do start to wonder if you belong and whether this is the right degree. And I think a lot of students drop out because they think that their stress is related to them actually not belonging not that discomfort of learning yeah so but do you think that's more like that particular phenomenon is more in the earlier years or like once they sort of really get into it and then yeah I think it's early I think it's really early like first year um sometimes a bit in second year but I think in in the OT programs I've worked in so there's only been three (laughs) but that um first year is that real litmus test so um, do I belong, have I got the academic capacity 
do I like these people is the part of the belonging. <laughs> that was <laughs> probably a big factor fit. for me. <laughs> but, but some of the people who turn out to be the best OTs are the ones who, in fact, didn't actually ever feel like uh, they felt like they didn't belong, but there was somebody inside their program who said, no, you do, you really do. And um, or maybe a practice educator said, oh, yeah, you're bringing something really special. And I, I had a few, of, I've had a, seen a few of those students over my time and I think they've turned out to be some of the best OTs because what they're, they're not just bringing fantastic things to their clients but they're bringing a, a whole new perspective to the profession. Yeah. So and I'm, I, I really value them. I can relate to that. Like I'm not saying I'm a good OT or anything but like I was, I can say I was a terrible student but and I really didn't, I didn't see the relevance of a lot of the stuff that we were being taught or or any yeah. of any of the classes really until I went on placement and then when I came back from placement it suddenly just all clicked and I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, this is gosh. what we do, this is why we do it. And even talking after I graduated, talking to one of my old lecturers, um, Yvonne, who confirmed mm. that, yes, I was probably not the best student but the fact that when I came back from placement, like I was a completely different person. Oh, all, I saw all of a sudden, this this, this yeah. two and a half years of study that you've just done before you go on placement, the whole thing just sort of comes together at once, and it's like, whoa! Yeah, it's a, a big had, growth period. I had a fourth year this year. He when he came back and was supervising students on prac with me, or so basically, we have fourth years go out with our first years in our very first prac at the end of first semester. Oh, yeah. We have. They're doing a child and youth clinic oh, cool. practice education at the uni. And so they come out with us to the special schools. So it totally fits in with what they're doing. Yeah, they're awesome. learning how to become future supervisors. And um, so they co-supervise with us. And one of the students who I remember, I just remember he never came to class <laughs> in the first two years. That was, that was it's me. tough being a guy. <laughs> you really stand out and your absence stands out further. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's pretty funny. So um, I couldn't believe how fantastic he was this year. So just really good to see. So and um, it was prac, you know, it was prac. Yeah. That's what and put that's, it together. I think from my perspective anyway, I, I probably a lot of guys – probably learn more with that hands-on than sitting in the classroom. So I think that's probably a fairly common thing for yeah. men is once you actually get to go out and start doing it, it all yeah. of a sudden makes a lot more sense and you can see what you're actually meant to be doing and how it all works together and that kind of thing. Yeah. I haven't read anything up on it. I know there is research and papers, but I haven't read any of it yet. But yeah. <laughs> just my personal experience being the – uh the minority in the profession. Exactly, yeah. And that was something yeah. I was talking to one of my classes the other day because surprisingly this particular workshop group is 20 people in it and there's like nine dudes, so it's almost half. Wow. It's pretty much every guy in that cohort but they're all in yeah. one class so that particular <laughs> yeah. class is half-half and I'm like you guys have the opportunity then to essentially learn how each other thinks because, yes, the yeah. profession is – what is it, 88% female, something huge. Yeah, yeah. But your clients aren't going to be. 
No. So you yeah. get very well, like the guys then learn how to have a conversation with women, which is, yeah. you know, different to them kicking around with their mates. Mm. And they're going to have to learn how to talk to different people when they get out of uni in yeah. in practice. So yeah. I'm like, you guys have the opportunity now with 50-50 to like really try and interact yeah. with each other. And that, that class is quite practical. It's a lot of, um, it's implementing a lot or they're learning a lot of uh, practical intervention type stuff for mental health. So it's a lot oh, of nice. sort of interviewing yeah. and, um, you know, car wire and that kind of stuff. So they do have to interact with each other a fair bit. Yeah. That's so good. I'm like, don't waste this opportunity because this I've never seen this happen in an OT it's class. Good for the girls too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they're getting that, you know, that actual input by men, like nine guys in the room. That's awesome. It doesn't yeah. happen. I don't think that ever happened. I'm pretty sure there was less than that in my whole cohort. Yeah. Well, we we've never actually I don't I don't know how many studies have actually looked at the the implications of studying in sort of a female vacuum, you know? I've like, thought about it, but it's one of those things yeah. where you're like, is this going to be too sensitive to say anything kind of thing? Mm. I wonder if a guy, a woman and a man should study it I together. Think, yeah, so I think that would probably be the, yeah. the safest. I do know there was one that I remember reading. I think it was Chris Lloyd on the Gold Coast. I'm sure she mm. wrote something up about it. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> that was years ago. Yeah, well, it's really worth looking at. I mean, I, when I visited Newcastle here in Australia, um, I noticed they had a, a really great program for their their male students. Yep. And um, One of our they, staff members is a, a, a male graduate of Newcastle, I've been told. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and you have to ask him about it. He might have been part of that, um, you know, that group. But he basically what they did they got some male OTs to come into the, the uni and hang out with the guys and do things like go and kick the footy and chat. and Like a male just, mentorship type. Exactly, yeah, doing things that guys like to do. So they didn't go for coffee like women would. They went and hung out. That's probably well, what you'd I go would for do. Coffee. Yeah. Now, now. I do yeah, like coffee. Yeah. Oh, you'd have coffee and maybe chuck a footy or press some weights or whatever. Yeah, you'd get everyone with, you know, hey, lift that 100 kilos. Yeah, and then drink that latte. Yes. We can combine things. It's fine. (laughs) The latte lifter. Yeah, sensitive new age OT. Yeah, you are. I love it. Anyway. I've got my tea. I'm ready. You've got your tea. Oh, we've started. This is just a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it works. And then we I can, know, I can imagine chop and change. Totally. All right, well, I'll just get more tea then. No, no go for it. <laughs> I recorded um, one the other week just sitting outside under a tree and all you can hear in the oh, background is Oh, I listened to that one yesterday. Yeah, the birds. I know. I was, I was tempted to go outside and the birds. <laughs> And then one swooped me. I'm like, oh. oh, no. That's all right. Ooh, okay. I didn't realise we right. had that many birds. Yeah, you had a lot of butcher birds. I could hear them. Mm. And then scrub turkey. I had to stop a few times and cut it out because the scrub turkeys, it was just all leaves behind me and the scrub turkeys were fighting and they were just right. fighting and running through the leaves and that's all you could hear was like 
And they're fast too. They like sprint. I just love kookaburras and they just make me laugh. That was what swooped me. Oh. (laughs) I don't think he actually meant to swoop me. I think he was just flying and I was a bit close to where he was flying. Anyway, yes. Anyway, so I am of the belief that no one chooses OT. OT finds you mainly because, well, not mainly because, lots of different reasons. But I want to know why do you think OT found you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think my upbringing led me to become an OT because um, I'm a daughter of an Anglican minister and a nurse. And so that combination of caring and always like it's just about service um, meant that my that was just normal in my family. So I didn't really have any concept of um, any other world. So mum was always talking about the people she was caring for, not, you know, by name but describing mm. them and their lives and whatnot. And she really, really, really loved nursing so much. And my dad, well, because you live actually inside a vicarage, um, you know, that's the house that the church owns yep. for those people who aren't churchy. <laughs> um you, you've got people coming and going constantly, and so you're part of the whole, the whole thing, the whole setup. You're part of the business. <laughs> That's probably like kids who grow up in in shops and things like that. You, yeah, you grow up to it. Um, so when I was um, uh, about fifteen, um, my friend Vicky, her her mum worked for Noah's Ark Toy Library in down in Windsor in Melbourne and they needed people to go on camps with them for um, like kids camps on school holidays. So um, they're they're basically short of staff and volunteers. So we volunteered and we went along to this camp and I just loved it so much and I loved working with these kids. They were were so cute and we had so much fun. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing but I just, did what I was told by the people who were there and, um, you know, was helping with all sorts of things like feeding and toileting and dressing and playing and we were just, that was, you know, that was my first exposure probably to kids with disabilities. And so then my mum ran, she set up an adult daycare centre for elderly people in Dandenong, which I'm really proud of. And, um, she, so I'd spend my school holidays there. So I spent my school holidays going and hanging out with the oldies and playing games with them and <laughs> listening to their stories. And That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was cool. And um, they would do things like um, they did a lot of basket weaving and that sort of stuff there because they were strengthening their hands and dexterity and they had all these sort of activities and oh, all of their exercise routines were all based around dressing um so that people maintain range of motion so I couldn't have said all of that when I was a kid but yeah, yeah. and um one day mum somebody said to mum um when they were doing um basket weaving or something like that I think it was actually um bath mat weaving because it was quite a soft thing to work with and they said oh this is good occupational therapy and and she said hmm, yeah this is a form of occupational therapy but occupational therapy is a science as well 
And uh, I remember this conversation and her telling this woman, you know, OTs just don't do basket weaving. And I thought, oh, what's occupational therapy? <laughs> so I didn't know, but my mum was educating this other person that OTs did these kinds of things, but that wasn't all it was. Mm. And um, because I think the woman who was saying it was sort of saying that this was OT. You know? Yeah, yeah. So that, she was obviously was an OT or knew what OT was, obviously. Yeah. And, and then I think as I was heading towards the end of school, my mum said, you'd make a great OT. And so we looked into it. So I have to thank my mum for suggesting that I become an OT. And, um, but I suppose if you think about somebody who volunteers to go on camps with kids with disabilities and someone who hangs out on their school holidays <laughs> with old people playing games and really loves it, <laughs> that's not a bad sign. <laughs> it was, sounds like it was pretty much going to happen inevitably. Yeah. And then also I, um, you know, instead of going to church, because actually I didn't really like going to church that much, I ran the creche yep, at the yep. church. So I did that instead. So I'd run the creche on Sundays. So I pretty much was always with people and always doing things. And, um, yeah, just so I think that's how I found OT. And uh, to be perfectly honest, um, Brock, I wasn't really the best student um, when I got there. <laughs> so, but it was for a couple of reasons. But um, Like mainly you said, because I sometimes, the, <laughs> sometimes the not best students make the best OTs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true, I have heard that a lot, and I think it's often true. I think sometimes the the, pra- the really hands-on practical people, it takes a bit longer for the, the academics to get through, and that yeah. was definitely the case for me. Yep. So I, I don't really think I actually got the academics until about 10 years out. <laughs> I think I'm still so, working on it. <laughs> so, yeah, my master's totally helped with that. So. <laughs> I was a bit of a late bloomer academically, but um, I always loved the hands-on and, yeah, so, yeah. That's awesome. And you went to uni at Deakin, is that right? Oh, actually, I went to La Trobe. Ah. I went to Lincoln. Yeah, I taught at Deakin later. Ah, but, um, that was the connection. I, yeah. Because I, I remember when I, I was did, there and you were sending me messages of like, oh, I miss that place. <clears throat> yeah, I went to, I did my PhD at Deakin as well. So I got a really good connection with Deakin. So connections yeah. all over the place. And where yeah. did you find yourself working? Like when you finished uni, in like with older people, or like did you follow that same route, or where did you end up? <laughs> no, that's quite funny. Um, no, one of my favourite placements was in mental health when I was in third year. I really enjoyed mental health, and um, so I went and I kind of cold called. Uh, this hospital in Geelong back then it was called Dax House and um, Leo Coolhouse was the oh, really? OT there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I um I I sent a letter in and um, she said oh we've actually just withdrawn a position that we couldn't fill <laughs> I meet with you so we, I think we met and and I think as long as we got along the job was mine <laughs> so uh, and we did we and, got ov- and obviously really well. you did yeah and still do. Yeah, I know. Oh, she was awesome. What a great first boss to have. Like, brilliant. Um, yeah, it just gives you lots of scope um, to try things out. Never said, oh, you know, oh, don't do that. It doesn't work. Said, um, 
you know, what are you thinking and give it a try and maybe look out for these things yep. but never said no or don't. Very, very, very positive and encouraging boss to have. So she was brilliant. And um, I had a, I had, it was a really good because then I moved from acute to community about 18 months in and then I stayed in the community for a couple of years and worked in a step-down facility that had just been purpose-built where this was when, you know, deinstitutionalization was happening mm. and tons and tons of people were being thrown out of large institutions. Into out the of the bins. Mm, I know. I didn't want to use that word, but yeah. That's what it's called. That's what, <sighs> that they, were, that's what they were called at the time. They were they obviously were not bins. overly politically correct that's, or even very terrible. nice nowadays, but oh. Oh, that's what they terrible. were referred to, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, so anyone who had a previous address of Geelong, um, even if they'd been 30 there. years prior, yeah, was relocated. Oh, wow. Even if they didn't have family there anymore. So anyway. I we, didn't know that. So group homes sprung up, hmm. um, all these step-down facilities and, yeah, it was really good. I really enjoyed that too and had fantastic, like, you know, the best thing about any job is the people you work with and in every place I've worked, I've just, it's the culture, the people, that can-do attitude, that's always what makes me stay somewhere mm. and, you know, and, and work harder and yep. try new things. So, yeah, mental health was where I started. That, yes. <laughs> yeah, Winning. Like that. <laughs> and I think it's a great foundation because then you never overlook mental health again. So um, I went from there to work rehab and um, back in the days when CRS, Commonwealth rehab service yep. really did help people get back to work it doesn't exist anymore but it went through a real transition after that anyway but I wanted to work predominantly with people with serious mental illness in that space yep. so that's like kind in of the, the workspace group I had mm. okay so I, I had them as my um <clears throat> as my client group I had other people of course but the, the good thing is is that when you're working with somebody um, with some kind of, say, you know, work cover, you know, back condition, um, you also pick up on all of the depression and anger because you're really finely tuned to it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was it was good. So I was actually working in OC rehab for nine years. Oh, nice. Yeah. Is that in the and same I, area, like Geelong area? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, in Geelong, and then I, I did some um, visits to Colac, which is about an hour and a half out of Geelong, towards Warrnambool. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it's a really great way to learn yep. a ton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, also to hit the road and, and just sort of be mm, out, out on the road visiting people. So, yeah, and then after that I worked in a, a surgical hospital for just under a year and um, <clears throat> then I, um, that was fun. I actually really think that people, <laughs> I know, like what <laughs> fun. Uh, what I really liked about doing that was because I'd been so experienced in other areas, I knew how to build rapport quickly, how to get to the questions that needed to be answered quickly and um, and just honing on the really important stuff because I think a lot of new grads think, oh, I'll work in acute first and that'll really set me up. But one of the cautions I have about working in an acute setting 
is that you have to be really fast and without experience it's hard to be fast. And so unless it's really, really well supervised and guided, Mm. I actually think getting experience in other areas and learning about yourself, your preferences, the ability to build rapport really carefully but quickly. Yep. Um, and all those things stand you in really good stead in really fast-paced settings like acute hospitals so um, where you can literally walk into the room and meet, greet, assess mm. and walk out again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's um, I've <clears throat> advocated quite a fair bit for the same thing for acute mental health in that mm. it seems to be in most districts, it seems to be a position that they struggle to hold sort of therapists for long term. So because of the high mm. turnover, it ends up generally with a whole series of new grads in those yeah. positions. And then there just never seems to be any traction on terms of actually developing the profession with uh, the developing the position within yeah. that, uh, that ward. Yeah. So, and, and I know a lot of, like, cause I, I have worked on a couple of acute units uh, on the Gold Coast and up up here in Townsville. Yeah. And I think when I got the job in the Townsville one, I was the first non-new grad they'd had in like 11 years. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And I was the only one they'd had who'd actually, uh, only one ever, I think, that has ever worked on another acute unit before. Right, right. Uh, oh, so, and, and yeah. I think... <sighs> It was good for me because I already sort of knew what the position should look like. Uh, It was bad for them because the position didn't look like what it should look like. (laughs) And I'm slightly assertive, I guess. Yes. yes. Uh, So it was good from a a professional point of view in terms of shaping that position again. But I did like 11 years. And I'm not saying that those, because I don't even know most of them. I'm not saying they never did a, a good job, but. Just as a general thing, most new grads aren't like they're going in there to do what they're told to, you know, if their first job, they're aiming to please and that kind of thing. Whereas I didn't have that on my agenda. I didn't need yeah. to have, I didn't need the approval of other staff and that kind of thing. And I mean, I got along with them professionally anyway, but I. I think it was just an experience thing. I I didn't need like I I had a a perspective on what it should what should happen on an acute unit for an OT. Yeah. Um which I think that particular role had been pushed into a lot of stuff that really wasn't the OT's job just because of lack of assertiveness, which is yeah. to be expected from a new grad. I mean even when I got my first job, my first job was uh in a part-time acute, part-time community rehab job. And I wasn't assertive. I didn't. I just did what I was told. Same. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, I was exactly the same. And that's that's probably the main reason, especially well, for a mental health acute unit anyway. Like I don't think it's the best first position for a new grad. Like fair enough if they're, you know, because you're a new grad for a couple of years once you, you're out. If they've gone and done something else in the community and campus-based rehab, whatever it is, and then going into acute, so at least you can see that other that other side because that's the other thing that I used to find on the acute unit is yes you, you live in a little bubble <laughs> you yeah. and yeah. yes you'll see some people will have repeated missions so you'll get to see them multiple times and yeah so you've already got some rapport and you can sort of build 
on yeah. what you did last time with them kind of thing, but you're still only seeing people when they're really unwell. You don't yeah. get to see yeah. that out, like what happens in between those admissions mm-hmm. uh, and how they live at home and how they manage and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think working community for a little bit is a, a better first step because then you also get that, you know. I agree. That yeah. whole picture of the process as opposed to just seeing the the very pointy end of it. I agree. Yeah, and I think actually that would make people much more comfortable with being occupation-based in the acute setting if they have the context of that person's life. Yeah. Um, that a really good understanding of, you know, oh, that's right, you live in this section of town and the shops are here and this and around. You know, you've got this really good picture yeah. of, okay, well, this is what you do normally. You know, how do we how do we get you back there? So, yeah, no, I totally agree. And um I've actually been saying that to a few of my students recently. Um, one of them just even last week asked me that exact question. <laughs> so she said, you know, what do you think about acute first? And, and I said, well, this is my take on it. And she said, oh, I'm really glad you said that because that's the dead opposite to what I'm being told and I really want to hear a range of perspectives. So, and yeah. I, think, I think a lot of new grads... I think the stress around finding a job after studying for so long, like a lot of them, yeah. and I've, I've, I've heard from a lot of them, they'll take whatever whatever yeah. comes up just to, you know, quite often the advice is just get your foot in the door. And I'm like, yeah. that's that's good and that's true, but you can still be a little bit selective about which door you're putting your foot in, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think you can. Um, you know, as long as you're not destitute, I think it's it's good to be a bit fussy for a little while but if it if you start to really really need to pay the bills maybe maybe take a job and then see how it goes and then um you know as you and I know there are some industries that tend to burn out grad new grads pretty early and um it worries me and I think that they need you know more mentoring and supervision outside of those industries because the industries themselves don't offer it and Mm. I don't know if I should say it but Ocri had private providers are one of them yep I've said it now. But, um, <laughs> it's out there. You know, they tend to chew up and spit out new grads and, and I just don't think that's a really sustainable option yeah. for the student or the graduate Yep. Um, but also the industry because if the industry actually does want to do a really good job, it should grow its people. Well, yeah, if you're not hanging on to the experience that you're building as a workforce, then yeah. the workforce yeah. as a whole isn't going to progress because that's the other yeah. thing I see a lot of, well, not a lot, but I see in new grads if their first role isn't uh, like a good one, I see quite a lot of them that one either get stuck in that role or mm. leave mental health completely. Yeah. Yeah. So one well, thing, like another thing, and I've heard lots of people tell new grads this, is to like don't be afraid to chop and change for your first few years. Like, Get a range of experiences. No one's going to go, oh, you only stayed in this job for six months because you can say, I stayed in it for six months because I wanted to try this one and then I did that one for eight months and then I tried this one. Yeah. Like there's no. And when when you're a new grad, every day feels like a week. Yeah. (laughs) So it doesn't feel like eight months at all. It feels like three years. (laughs) It's your whole career up until that point. (laughs) Well, it 
just your whole career, isn't it? I mean, that's 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 probably the best perspective you can give to it. At that the end of that first eight months, it's your whole career so far. Yeah, so, especially that's a good point. You've spent the the <laughs> four years previous to that living six months at a time. Yeah, and pracs are you know maximum of ten weeks. Yeah. So your experience of ten weeks was like an eternity as well. Except for the last week, it's really fast. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the last week you go, so, where did the 10 weeks go? But yeah, in week two, it's like, yeah. man, this is going forever. Yeah, so eight months is going to feel really long in comparison to that. <laughs> so, and that's, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. They just, and maybe it's different nowadays. Like that was like my first job, I was in that for 18 months. Yeah, there you go. Um, that's funny. But I'd probably, then I'd done, probably in my first three years, like I'd had three jobs. Yeah, yeah. Three or f- three and a half years maybe. Yeah. Um, And then even up here, like I've been back in Townsville for seven years and I've done three, this is my third job in Townsville. Obviously yeah. this is very different from a clinical job. Are you counting, are you counting your DJ role as one of those jobs? No, there you go, four jobs. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Brock. One of, one of them not paying. Yeah, yeah. This is my what about the wait, what community about service. Hmm. No, that's, that keeps me sane from all the job changes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, I think um, and also, you know, as we keep reading and see career, how many careers are people going to have in a lifetime these days? So you know, your average 21-year-old is going to have something like 15 yeah. or 45. <laughs> like, I can't remember what something, the stats Something are. massive when back in the day yeah. it was one. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. This is it for the next 50 years. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, if you look back at your own parents, they did reinvent themselves within their own oh, yeah. jobs. They stayed in the same career, but they did do different things. And mine, mine definitely did. Mm. And yeah. I think, like, I wonder whether back then too, like those jobs because people were staying in them had more, uh, I guess, progression within yeah. the jobs, whereas nowadays I know a lot of people are sort of saying like there's never anywhere to, to grow into and I, I wonder whether that's a symptom of the fact that people are just chopping and changing and moving. Yeah, I just blame the baby boomers because they haven't retired. But yeah. that just makes Susan go wash my dear, dear friend very grumpy when I say that. <laughs> I can't, I can't blame mum and dad. My mum and dad have just retired, so. Yeah. No, I can't keep no, keeping that one on there. I for a really big shift in, in, the, in the workforce, especially in, you know, Western cultures where boomers are retiring. Yeah. Um, it's a very rapidly ageing population. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I spoke to um, Samantha Bowen, who I don't know if you know Samantha from Perth. No who runs a, a – she's got an entrepreneurial project mm-hmm. looking at – that is looking at getting more young people into leadership positions in aged care. Ah, and, and that's her thing. It's like it's an aging workforce and at the moment it's not a workforce that's attracting young people. Like apparently the median age mm-hmm. in, that, in that workforce is like 50-something. Yeah. So it's an aging workshop. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) But it's an aging workforce as well. That's right. Which means that, you know, the the workforce is going to be retiring in the next 10, 15 years. Oh, yeah, and taking all that knowledge. And the population that they're servicing is getting bigger. So there's no one one coming through to back that up. Yeah. Which means that workforce is 
potentially going to go into a massive crisis in the next 10 years. Yes. I'm glad she's doing that work. That's going to be really important. That's so cool. So, yeah. So that podcast will be out by the time this one comes out. Oh, cool. Um, Wonderful. But, yeah, it's. I think there's a few. That's one industry where I, I like it's a very clear place for OTs and I think that's a really good industry for a lot of new grads to get into as well. Yeah. Because it's oh, so broad. It's yes, it's an age population, but there's physical, medical, surgical, mental health, yeah. like there's everything except pediatrics within that within yeah. that one sort of demographic. Yeah. I love um all those YouTube clips you can see or you know online where um they, they co-locate a daycare centre, a child daycare yes, centre I've seen those. older adults. I think that is so brilliant. Yeah, I've seen those. It's a, oh, where was it? It's like Holland or somewhere. Yeah. Where they it's becoming more popular. I think they've even emerged in the States We need well. We need one in Australia. That would be we awesome. Do. I think that just should be how it gets well, it makes done sense. from now on. It's like... <laughs> Well, stop both, segregating you know, people at different ends of their lives. Yeah, but they both get something out of it then. Yeah, they, Little they kids really get looked do. after and older people get to look after little kids. Yeah. It's win-win. Yeah. It's, it's really sad, isn't it, because it's almost like they're the two populations that never get to speak, you know, for themselves. Yeah. And, yeah, and so they just get segregated and, and yeah, put into institutions. <laughs> it's, and it, it's interesting on like that kind of thing on terms of how like that's a very westernized sort of culture thing to do that because you look at even like say traditional Japanese culture or most native cultures where yeah if once you get older like your family like is keen to look after you like that's what they've been it's their responsibility yeah they've been preparing for it for however long and that kind of thing and we're like oh you're old going home (laughs) <laughs> but, but also, I mean, I have to say my parents did not want to come and live with us and be a burden to us. So I, I don't think it's just that we put, in our society, we put people in homes. I think it's also that we grow up believing we need to be completely independent mm. of each other and we don't think, oh, you know, that we, we think it's almost a you've failed and yeah, you're interfering yeah. with your children's lives. Yep. So, um, you know, we sort of have children, give them give them all the capacity to be independent, give them wings, you know, let them fly, and then we don't want to interrupt them when they're in their 50s to mm. say, hey, I'm old now, mm. <laughs> can you look after Help. me? We go, don't worry, I've saved up enough money and I'm going to put myself into a nursing home now or you're going to take control of that because <laughs> yeah. I'll probably lose my marbles. But, um, you know, we've got this really interesting thing where we basically say independent till I die, mm. you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, when I was in Singapore recently, um, someone actually asked me about that. They just oh, really? Said, yeah, it was quite funny. They said, um, you just twigged my memory, and they, they actually said, do, do you look after your parents uh, when they age or do you put them into, like, do they go into a nursing home? And I just thought, oh, wow. Uh, okay, yeah, they tend to go to nursing homes unless they can age in place until they die, and I'm really grateful that both of my parents, you know, died at home mm. and on their own terms. I mean, of course, they're... 
in their seventies, which means they were, you know, quite they they had not did not have dementia or anything like that, which is probably one of the hardest things yeah, to yeah. deal with at home. But you know, having both of them had cancer, and so therefore. Um, dying of cancer at home is something you can do, but uh, it's really tough. And this, this conversation is really going everywhere, isn't it, Brock? But <laughs> I'm, I'm from a family of, you know, a pharmacist, a nurse, um, a lighting and sound technician, which is very helpful when you, you know, setting up a home for someone to yeah, yeah. be safe and, yeah, really technically advanced. Disco um, lights and, and stuff. So you've got, I would love every family to have the capacity to look after their own. So their parents can die on their terms in their home or in palliative care because I think we want to give everybody a choice. Um, my mother-in-law wanted to die in an acute care setting with bells and whistles, literally, <laughs> so that I think she almost wanted the flat line, you know, <laughs> as she exits. <laughs> and then my father-in-law really didn't want to die and that was the hardest thing to deal with. And um he he had to go to a hospice facility because he was on his own and we had little children and it was just very hard to um we had work we had little children and family were all distant and so we had to use the services of a hospice in that case and so having had two die at home one in hospice and one in acute care we've got a pretty good perspective on yeah that. yeah the, the range of options available yeah yeah you would <laughs> <laughs> but and, um, I want to say that the obviously the independence thing mm. is a very that that in itself is probably more the the westernized view on life yeah. and what we should be doing. I forgot what I was going to ask. Then you have to write down notes. <laughs> I do. Ah, oh, I'm not good with notes. I don't deal with no. notes. You don't do notes. No, I don't do. I never <laughs> did. Even clinically, I never did notes. Oh wow! I'll be like I. If I'm in a conversation, then once I get out of the conversation, I'll still remember what we talked about and I can write it all down. Oh, that's good. So that's like hard when I'm teaching students because I'm like, if you need to, take notes. And they're like, oh, what did you write? I'm like, I didn't. But if you need to, take yeah, notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I take notes because then I make my connections on my notes and I'm yeah. very visual. So. Well, see, I think a lot of the tools that I used to use were very visual, so I didn't need notes. Mm, so, like, I've it. used a lot of, yeah. um, like, values cards and that kind of stuff. So, you can see it all and we move it all and it all plays That's out cool. on the table or, you know, you're doing art or you're mm. actually out doing something. So, it's very visual or very yeah, nice. engaged in whatever you're doing. So, I don't, I don't know, I just never really needed notes. And the the talking aspect of it, I like talking to people, so I'm usually fairly engaged in the conversations yeah. anyway. So, and when I'm yeah. engaged in it, I'm yeah. I'm gonna remember it. It's, I can remember conversations that I had with clients from three or four years ago. Well, yeah, yeah, three or four years ago when I was at acute. Like, if I'm engaged in the conversation, like I'll I'll generally be genuinely be interested, and that's something. Again, trying to get that across to students, I'm like, be interested. You can be engaged if it's something you've never, if you know nothing about, even if it's something that you think on the surface is, you know, going to be boring. If it's something you don't know about, mm. there's, you're in. Conversations yeah. like that are the easiest when there's something you don't know anything about. It's harder when you know something about it. 
So maybe, you know how before <laughs> we were talking about that fear of not knowing stuff mm. and that whole stress and, and anger and mm. stuff. And so we're talking about how when you don't know something, I wonder if perhaps, you know, when somebody's saying something and you're not really listening, I think it, and then you're, because you're not listening because you're trying to work out, I, I don't really know what they're saying. So you don't ask a question because you don't want to look silly. Mm. And I'm not talking about you because I know you would ask a question. But then, so you're actually stressed, which means that you aren't, you're just not taking it in. And then you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to look silly. I'm, I'm supposed to be a healthcare practitioner here. I'm supposed to know this stuff. Mm. Or I'm a student. I, I'm supposed to know this by now. And um, so then they, hold, uh, they can't ask the question. So literally, they're not listening to the person because they're. Into they're thinking about what they don't know, but they're not even going to ask, and so they're going to walk away from that conversation with maybe a tenth of the information mm. they could have come away with. And I think that's partly why I never used to take notes, is because it distracted me from the conversation. Yeah, I'm not yeah. the best at putting my attention into two things at once. So if I'm writing notes, like mm. that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and if I'm talking to someone, that's what I'm doing. So I'd rather. You know, and conversations, especially on an acute unit, usually weren't massively long. Like it mm. shouldn't really be hard to hold your attention for half an hour or something. And if you have a conversation yeah. for half an hour, it really shouldn't be hard to remember. Yeah. And if you're if you're focused on that conversation, it won't be hard to remember what you've talked about. Mm. Whereas if you're yeah. talking, writing notes, talking, writing notes, listening to people around you, being distracted. Mm. then it's going to be harder for you to actually remember what you talked I'm actually, about. I'm actually highly distractible, auditorily distractible, and mm. I find it really hard to cut out any other noises that are around me. So if I'm having a conversation with, say, with you and yep. then somebody was over there talking, I would be hearing all the yeah, yeah. conversation as well and I'd be processing maybe half of each. Yeah, see, I'm very maybe. visually distracted. So, like, if uh, me and my partner are at a restaurant or something, I and she kicks me under the table all the time because I'll like I have to look at everything that's going around. <laughs> like, I can't focus. So every time there's an interview, because a lot of the rooms in some of the hospitals have got like glass walls and stuff, I'd have to put my back to the glass wall yes, so yes. that I don't see people walking past yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but and that's that's again another thing I try I'm constantly trying to get across to people is that. That level of self-awareness is going to help you. The fact that mm. I know that means that I can set the room, I can mm. be more effective in what I'm trying to do because I know what I'm like. <laughs> and I yeah. think it's hard sometimes to get people to be that honest with themselves. I'm like, yes, you are going to have faults and you need to know what they are. Yeah, you do. Yeah. So yeah. just and be it's honest. it's okay to have them. <laughs> yeah, and it's okay. Everyone does. Yeah. Everyone's, the more honest you are, the better outcome you're going to get. It doesn't matter what yeah. the intervention is. It's kind of refreshing when people know. Like yeah. You think, oh, good, you know that about yourself. Let's all handle it together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the same yeah. as um, I've been doing a lot of work and reading and teaching around values and value systems in the last few yeah. weeks. Yeah, listen to your podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's where that's where that came from was again just yeah. thinking about that in between classes and designing lessons and that kind of thing. And isn't that the best thing about learning? Oh, so good. Yeah. So good. I know. Love it. It's it really fits with my. I don't know. I have this tendency to where 
some random little tiny thing and it could be completely unrelated will trigger a thought and then I'm off mm. off exploring and researching and reading and yeah recording yeah. things and <laughs> which is great so yeah. that's my little my little random rants that uh, yeah. come out on these on these podcasts sometimes I just think they're more like ponderings, don't you think? Pretty much. It's just like, yeah. oh, I've been thinking about this or an idea yeah. that so it could be something that like I the think values smart one that goals might have been a bit of a rant, but smart goals <laughs> definitely had a little bit of emotion behind it. <laughs> that was pretty funny. It's uh I've had I had so much feedback over that one. Yeah. Most of it was positive. Actually all of it was pretty positive. Yeah. Um Sue Patterson emailed me about it because she's apparently in Australia at the moment uh, Yep, um, and wanted to meet up. I'm not sure if she – I think she, maybe she thought I was in Brisbane or because yes. I think she was in Brisbane. Or, um, uh, but, yeah, anyway, yeah. we couldn't couldn't quite make that work. But, yeah, she was saying that she agreed with me on the, the smart goals thing and presented her uh, concept. She had a video, her YouTube video. I might put the oh, link up somewhere oh, of cool. her using the Mohost. Yeah. As a goal setting tool. Yeah, yeah. I would have liked to have gone down to her workshop in um Brisbane. Yeah. But um I just couldn't fit it in with work. Yeah. Just, yeah. I had to be teaching at the same time. But um yeah, it looked like it was really well received. And um how how incredible. What a what a robust yeah. um model that, you know, Moho has been for such a long time. It's, it's um, really stood the test of time, actually. Been around forever and it seems to be continually sort of growing. not reinventing itself, but I yeah, guess staying just... staying fluid enough to be used in contemporary yeah. practice. People, people are leveraging, time's good, um, people are leveraging it really well. Yeah, yeah. And I like, um, I yeah, I really like how it's, I think it's well-researched and also then the tools that have emerged from it mean that um, you can use it practically and theoretically concurrently. Yep. And I really like, for example, I, I, used, I learned how to use the worker role interview um, when I was teaching at the University of Alberta in Canada. <laughs> and, so you have um, to say it, Alberta. Say it yeah, Alberta. <laughs> um, and you have to talk slow. <laughs> but... Um, what I loved about that was that if you used Moho properly, I you actually got your head around the model and I have to give credit to Susan Burwash for giving me that perspective when I was living and working in Canada. Yep. And because um, I wasn't a Moho person until then, I didn't really I, – I, I graduated after it came out, so – no, yeah, yeah. All, didn't have a lot of exposure. You to said it. it's been around forever, but it hasn't actually. <laughs> okay. Yep. Fair. I mean, I've been around more than forever. My but bad. anyway, that's Whoops. pretty funny. But anyway, um, I totally appreciate it now. And when I learned about the work role interview, um, when you interpret it using Moho correctly, you really understand the answers because you contextualize the answers inside the model. Yeah. Yep. And um, I think it's that that's that's great, really fantastic, and um, yeah. Anyway, that's just <laughs> that's just over there. I didn't actually think I'd talk about Moho, but random <laughs> random side thoughts. I random like random side thoughts. Thought. These yeah. are the thoughts that I have, and then I disappear into another world, looking at things. Yeah, yeah. This is how my little flighty brain works. 
Yeah. Yeah. One thing I do want to talk about, or to start with, is online technology. Mm. Because, one, that's how me and you met to start with. Yeah. And it's been a big part of my career and obviously your career, probably more so, for, God, when did we meet? 2011 was the first VX? I reckon it could have been earlier. When did, you start, nah, when did you start MH for OT? Two, that was 2012. Because oh. then we went to the Cairns conference at the end of 2012. Oh, yeah, so yeah. it must have been the year before, November yeah, 2011. We, met, we definitely met online first. Yeah. And when, then we met face-to-face in Cairns in, yeah, 2012. Because I think it was the 2011 VX, which... I don't know if that was the first one because when was Chile? 2010. 10. Mm. So that would have been the, no, or was that the second VX? Yeah, second VX. Yeah, because I think I missed the first one I, and I just randomly came across, oh, I should explain, the 24VX yeah. is an online 24-hour virtual conference uh, that was started and run by the lovely OT for OT ladies. Uh, and I random. I remember... I random. I can't even remember where I came across it. Someone liked something on Facebook or something, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." I clicked the link, and it was running at the time. Mm. And I'm like, "Oh, sweet!" Like, you know, presentations, and I can't even remember who was speaking at the time. Yeah. And then I was like, sat on my couch in Brisbane because it was. It must have been like a Friday night, or it was yeah. after work anyway, because I was at home. Yeah. Uh, and. Pretty much stayed there for the next like eight hours, just watching presentation after presentation after presentation, and um, and then and interacting because you could chat with people yeah, using the the, the old the old Blackboard uh, <laughs> yeah. program. Collaborate. Oh, and people were so Might have even scared been before of doing that. You know, <laughs> that was the best <laughs> bit. I love that. That's I met oh, so many yeah. people doing yeah. that. That's just me. Oh, I, yeah. I talk a lot. Um. And then after that, obviously, followed up with OT for OT and what is it and found the Facebook group and whatnot. And then it must have been, well, yeah, it would have been in, what, six months later because I started it June 22nd, 2012. Really? Yeah. Wow. Huh. That's amazing. So after six months of being involved or being engaged in the OT for OT group, I well, you'd started an AT for OT assistive oh, tech. No, you were mm-hmm. you were you were the first subgroup. You you think the AT for OT came second? Yep, AT for OT came second, and then I put it to you about the idea oh. of starting a whole series of them. You've got a better memory than I do. <laughs> I just know what happened in context of MH for OT because that's yeah, where I got because you're watching it obviously. Well, yeah, because I was watching from space. the outside, um, yeah. and that's where I got the idea of like, why don't we start like a whole series? Yeah, it's cool. And yeah, June twenty second, two thousand twelve, I started MH for OT, and then I can't remember what came next, but yeah, then the floodgates opened. Yeah. And yeah. now there's like 60 of them or something. Like there's just yeah, hundreds of them. 70. Uh, it's crazy. Um, so how did how did OT for OT come about to start okay. with? Okay. 
That's a good question. <laughs> I don't mind talking about it at all. Probably for me, that's kind of my legacy thing for OT in yep. my career now is um, is that I really, really was concerned that OT was falling behind. So how did OT for OT start? We, um, I was one of a group of people who um, felt that OT was falling behind in terms of techn- using technology. And um, I'd had this feeling when I was on my own down at Deakin University and and I even remember saying to my colleague, Karen Stegnetti, do you think that's a PhD? You know, (laughs) can I actually look at um, the use of online technology and occupational therapy? And uh, she just goes, of course. And I go, but is that a a PhD? (laughs) She's like, yes. Yes, there's a PhD there. And I think that's actually just a tip to people who want to do a PhD in the future. Hint, um, hint. Yeah, hint, hint. <laughs> Rock. Um, I didn't mean but, me. I mean anyone, but sure. <laughs> anybody who wants to do a PhD, um, you do do just run it past people who've done one. Mm. Like, is this a PhD? <laughs> and then they'll warn you, yeah, no, that's too big. <laughs> so, um Anyway, going back to how it all started, so I was really worried about uh, technology, where OT was going. I kind of felt like there was this tsunami approaching and we were going out to sea and that we weren't going to be riding this wave into shore at all and that, in fact, I was so worried about it, I actually thought and I believed that it was going to impact the long-term survival as of occupational therapy as a profession. So that's a big stressor. I, yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> so a little panic. So then, um, the good thing was that I already knew Marilee Penman, and we'd come across each other through academic um, circles, and then I uh, moved to Canada. And there I met Susan Burwash and also Rashid Kashani, who who did have an offer to join the group, but said no. Anyway, that's a funny story. He was he was already doing his own stuff. And so Susan and Merrily and I connected and you know, we we started talking and Merrily was connected with Sarah and Angela. And um also, Will Wade. I've got to mention Will because he's over in the UK. And um, there's a name I have this. not heard in a very long time. I know. I remember Great him guy. from the first couple of VXs. Yeah, yeah. Will's Will's yeah, really tech savvy too. I was going to say he was your like tech guy. He's a tech on the, guy on the first yeah, one. Tech that, OT. Yeah. He's yeah, one of the originals, and um, he was doing the. Um, the Wikipedia work with Sarah, and they were re- trying to re- rewrite Wikipedia, um, the OT, um, you know, insert yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia installation, um, which was hilarious because, of course, it, all the work got undone. Because <laughs> it's, it's Wikipedia, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty funny. Anyway, it was a really great initiative. So there was that, all of that sort of momentum happening around. 2006, 2007. So really long time ago now and, um, in you know, in relative terms. And so when I got to Canada and, and then Susan and Marilyn and the connection with um, 
the UK girls. We then, Susan, uh, no, I was presenting a, at a conference in um, oh, Ottawa <laughs> and a couple of my students were presenting a, a paper that we had just done working with vulnerable adults with head injuries and, and safe use of social media. And the paper was went down really well and students did a great job and this this woman is coming down the aisle at me and she's like, I've got to work with you. And I'm like, you're Karen Jacobs. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, yes, and you're Anita Hamilton and we have to work together. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, um, oh, my God, that lady, she is a phenomenon. You totally have to interview Karen Jacobs. And um, anyway, so... I told her about what we were doing as a new group and so there were five of us at this point and I sort of thinking she'd be a good sixth member and she said I'd love to join but please ask the other group members first and just um, you know out of respect to them you know you're already a group and I don't want to just come in um, and just you know (laughs) I want to be invited and welcome so I asked the girls and we that we all just we're like, yeah, gosh, that'd be great. <laughs> so that was a no-brainer for us. And um, probably one of the reasons that OT for OT had so much success was um, that we had such a really interesting group of people who were just all really hard workers, um, all had a really similar set of concerns around technology and OT because OTs are such hands-on people that, for a lot of people, it's like, I don't want an interface with technology. I actually just want to do with a person. And, um, and, you, and you had the majority of the world covered with the group. You've got Australia, yeah, New Zealand, yeah. England, <laughs> Canada, and America. Yeah, it was all really in, good. All in one group. Yeah, and Merrily was in New Zealand at yeah. that point. Yeah, so which was cool because it scooped in New Zealand too. And people forget New Zealand and New Zealand's so advanced and, you know, so progressive. Like, you know, they even let their prime ministers have babies, you know. God, <laughs> so, I don't want ours. Ours probably the hell? wouldn't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we all got together and um, the really lovely thing is, um, of course, this is all virtual. And um, we, we were... I suppose it's a bit of a blur from then, but when we, when Karen and I were talking on Skype one day, that's when we had to come up with a name. So I said, yes, everyone's happy for you to join. And we just sort of brainstormed a name and then we created the group that day and um, we let the group know <laughs> we've named it. <laughs> Sometimes people just take initiative. Executive decision. <laughs> and do things like that. Um and um, it started basically as, you know, as you know, online technology for occupational therapy. But what people read was OT for OT. So they, they were like, oh, OTs for OTs. Like yeah, a self-empowerment group. Yeah. So it, it didn't matter what it evolved. was for. They just got in, yeah, they just got involved. And we immediately thought we'd just use it for technology. And then, of course, people just what it was was using technology to, to connect, to connect OTs. Yeah, yeah. And um, the first virtual exchange evolved. Um, Merrily's friend Sarah, um, oh, gosh, why am I blanking? Sarah, you know, she's a midwife in New Zealand. She's now in Australia. Yep. 
Sarah Stewart. Um, Sarah Stewart ran in Virtual International Day of the Midwife. And That's right, yep. Yeah, so we followed her lead and she was our mentor. So she told us what to do, how to do it, um, you know, uh, all the things we need to get in place to get going. Um, she was great. Uh, we, you know, we probably wouldn't have got it up and running in a couple of months so without the, her help. The VX was birthed by a midwife. What a story. It was. That is so true, yeah, yeah. So conceived and, and birthed by a midwife. <laughs> so we just followed her lead. It was yeah. awesome. Um, so in 2008, on the very first World OT Day, no, not 2008. 2010. 2010. Thank you. On 2010, on the 27th of October, we had our first um, OT24VX and that was, um, uh, yeah, as you know, 24 hours. We had lots and lots of different speakers and from there we, we, we grew from strength to strength. People, there was a, a real following from that time and what I think really emerged from that was uh, a very, very strong online community. And that then we, as the years went, we didn't need to, as much as we could run things and run the VX and things like mm. that, we didn't have to do everything else. Um, people came on board, they took leadership roles. They, as long as you said, yes, please go ahead, they felt fine to go ahead and then gradually that got easier and easier. And now OT for OT is pretty much run by that community. Yeah. So it's not the six of us. We we started it, but it's run by a community. And as you know, because you're part of the community, there's a there's a, a back channel with, you know, ninety four members and yep. there's a group of people who run the groups. All together. the various groups, all the yeah, moderators. And they collaborate yep. and yeah. And that's I think that's such a strength that 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 just that continued the continued growth and then handing over and handing over and never being territorial yeah, yeah. and never saying, um, no, that's ours or we're going to make money from it or we're going to get famous from it or anything like that. And um, I think that's been the best thing is none of us were seeking fame or fortune <laughs> and, and it's just a, a really good community. And it looks after itself. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I noticed in getting MH for OT, so mental health for OT up and running was initially I probably did a lot of legwork in facilitating discussions and I used to have my, which a lot of people that have been in there for a while know, I used to have my Thursday potsters where I used to just throw something out there nice and controversial and watch it explode. (laughs) Um, and it was, I wasn't necessarily in there for stirring shit. It was more to get people thinking and get people talking to each other. Mm. Um, and now it's sort of hit like a critical mass probably a couple of years ago where I don't have to do that. It's quite interactive. People are quite engaged. There's so many new faces popping up and asking questions because I know that was one of the issues initially was people were afraid of how to use Facebook professionally. They were afraid that someone was going to steal their identity or, um, you know, whatever it is. 
but I think through that group, more people got more comfortable with it. I know me and you have presented together and individually a billion times about, you know, yeah. professional use of all social medias and, yeah. you know, that it's not something to be afraid of. And if you are worried about things, there's precautions you can take, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And mm. I think because I was looking back on some of our, <laughs> the old presentations that I've done and that we've done together and I'm like, yeah. this, you couldn't present this now. It doesn't, no. it's not relevant anymore. We've gone and it's a completely different landscape. Yeah. Now. And it's more, I think people, I think social media is just more ingrained now. It's not yes. something that people are so scared of anymore. I remember doing whole presentations on <laughs> why, like what people were scared about with, you know, different social media, like Facebook and Twitter and yeah. back in the day it was Pinterest I, as well. Yep, yep, <laughs> but, yep totally. And why or how you could overcome these these fears. Uh, and you just, yeah. it's just not. It's a, it's a different landscape now, which is amazing. And yeah. I think that OT for OT had a massive part in that. Yeah, because I, I think you're right. The, the first question that we kept getting was, well, what is Twitter? <laughs> oh, I still get that um, sometimes. It, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Australia. Yeah. Australia. Twitter's not really big in, uh, no, it's not big in, in Australia. Australia. It never no. really took off. No, it's kind of reserved no. for uh, conferences almost it in is, Australia. Yeah. It's yeah, massive when there's a conference. Yeah, 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 it's interesting. I think I presented um, to our fourth years a couple of weeks ago and there was one person in the cohort that used Twitter. Yeah. Oh, look, we should totally put our data together there because I think I got one as well. Did yeah. you use the same thing that we used? I did. To, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I did, I did, I did. It's, it's still going well. It is. But, as you, but did you notice also that there's, um, I just noticed it yesterday in, in feedback I got. It is, and you just you just nailed it for me. And I didn't want, know what I noticed, but I now know what I noticed. Why are we having this conversation? Because the people I'm teaching now, for the first time in my career, are tech savvy. Mm. The first time I'm seeing them walk into university, tech savvy, and as much as I might say to them all this stuff about you know protecting themselves and and you know being all of that stuff, they go, oh yeah, right, yeah, good. I mean. They just move. That's fine. Good. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning it. I'll I'll make sure I have a a name that is not identifiable. Oh, mm. great. Okay. I don't have to explain it. <laughs> I think it's they amazing. might have been taught it at school. Possibly. I, I, I think I hope so. Um, but they just they just they are, and, and so it's only a small number of people now who walk into my programs who are scared of technology. And so they're really easy to help. Yeah. Because it's a handful now. It's not a whole cohort. Yep. And I think people are using technology so well. And so in 10 years, we've seen this huge shift. And I'm I'm so grateful <laughs> because I really was worried that we weren't going to do it. Now you feel um, like we're riding that tidal wave? Totally, totally. I do. Record I do. it. Yes, <laughs> yes, and I think it's thanks to lots of people and and the fact that we all got on board and and we helped each other out and we didn't, um, yeah, we didn't just sort of overlook it and think, oh well, somebody else will do that. For some reason, this group of people said it quickly and out loud, and then 
everybody else who had some inklings about technology, people like you went, yeah, you're spot on. I'm getting on board quickly. And if it wasn't, as I keep saying to you, if it wasn't for the first followers, there would have been no momentum. I made reference to that with someone the other day. Yeah. And I'm like, so I was like, I remember, I still remember the day you sent me that, or you showed me that video, and it's it stuck with me. I have the to share it again. Guy. Yeah, yeah. Love that. video. I went and looked it up the other day. I'm like, yeah, I'll watch it again. <laughs> You're the so dancing good. guy. Apparently, oh, <laughs> uh, you haven't. Well, I probably dance as well as he does. If anyone's seen the video, oh, I think you know everyone should watch that video and just imagine it being you. So, but first followers are important, and I think it takes courage to be a first follower and. With all forms of change, um, you know, people have good ideas, but without first followers, hmm. change won't happen. Actually, yeah, it was with Samantha I was talking about it, but I was talking about it in the context of uh, we were talking about leadership and I was talking about it in the context of OTs being put in to that first follower role for the people that we work with. So mm. we can, you know, do things with people yeah. and we're their first follower, so we're their back up where their support to show that, you know, you can do this. Yeah. So well, it fits with, you know, um, my PhD was looking at information management and knowledge transfer and so the importance of digital literacy in the knowledge area was the title. But, you know, I used a lot of um, Everett Rogers' theory where he looks at um, diffusion of innovation. And so innovators are the people who come up with the ideas, but the early adopters are the ones who are your first followers. And and without them, you know, they're the they're the early, they're the early ones, they take it up, they trial it. And and you see them in the workplace and in society all the time. They're the ones who buy the new phone, buy the new tech, but the, they're also those people who don't just buy the new iPhone, right? They buy the other one and they give that a go. Yeah, yep. So that's not me. Um, I just always buy the iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> Apple they're, everything. They're Look around this room and everything yeah. Apple in here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit of an Apple freak too. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's but that's also habit, you know, like once you get something, it makes life easier for you to have just the same again because then there's that not that cognitive load of having to change what you do and how you do it. Yeah, yeah. And I guess to a degree, like I'm not I use Apple because I know it does what I need it to do and I'm mm. I'm still up and aware of, you know, what an Android can do or what a Samsung phone can do, etc. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't it, it doesn't uh it doesn't outweigh the I guess the effort of changing over my whole workflow. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly, workflow, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, anyway, it's been it's been an interesting journey of kind of that I suppose I was following a hunch to start with yep. and then moving through and then there was an interesting time where I was doing my PhD and also doing the OT for OT sort of getting up and going time and I'd have to sort of partition myself off because I was researching something and I didn't want to sort of share it at the same time. Yeah, I yeah. still had to finish my PhD and that was hard. But um, you know, if you're interested to know the findings of my PhD. Yeah. Sad, it was a bit sad really that um, I haven't really published much from it, only one main paper and I've got a couple that really should emerge from it. But the key the key findings were that OTs are as, as technologically savvy as the general public as a group 
Um, so we, we don't have um, we don't have rock stars in the tech world. Hmm. Uh, we're like everybody. And the other finding was that um, I, I basically developed this thing called the IMKT framework, and from that I evolved it into um, an ecological systems approach to information management and knowledge transfer. And that starts at micro, moves out to meso, then there's exo, and then macro. Yep. And that mac- macro is that whole you know government society you know, world level and then um, macro, micro, um, sort of meso is that the institutions, governments, local areas, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then what I did was actually put EXO as as the actual technology itself in this framework so that the EXO um, transcends all of those yeah, things. Yeah. And then micro is you, you yep. and your group and your team and and where you work. So your that's skill actually set paid and- for right. I need to work on because I'm really proud of that work. Yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> I remember get it out there. seeing you present it at which conference was that? Melbourne? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the first time I'd seen the model yeah. that you'd been yeah. working on for well, I knew you'd been working on it for, you know, probably since I met you. Yeah. Um <laughs> and it was the first time I got to see it and I was like, Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, thanks. I made a video. So Maybe that's uh, what I'll send I saw. you the link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send you the link. To yeah, my, yeah. My it's actually the ecological system version. I have made a video yep. because I actually use it to teach students about learning. Yeah, yeah. And how I'll learning I'll takes include place. it with the the show notes if you if you like. Sure, sure. And yeah. Post it yeah. so anyone that's interested can can check out the video and and learn <laughs> how to disseminate knowledge using digital technology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I really should write the paper. And I, I, um, that's that, that you know, the my my um, problem with publishing is, is that fear of of not having it perfectly right yet. And and I and I'm one of those people, and and I think it's what holds back a lot of people from publishing and and putting their thoughts out there. And yeah. I actually think you're, you know, like I really admire how brave you are doing a podcast because. You learn out loud in a podcast with people you're interviewing, and I, I just think, wow, that's so brave. Well, and, that's that's um, how I learn anyway. All I'm doing differently yeah. is putting a microphone in front of my mouth, <laughs> yeah, and then I, hoping I just, that anyone else that may learn similar to me can, you know, get something out of it as well. So, I th- yeah, and and the, I think the, the the key thing that you have and you're demonstrating is that your willingness to be wrong. Oh yeah, I'm. Um, I, I use generally will work under the assumption that I am wrong <laughs> and then See, look for I, evidence I, otherwise. Yeah. yeah, but that's pretty cool because what you're doing is saying, I'm going to put this out there because it's a thought I've had and it's feeling clear to me right now and I'm just going to test it with you all and please send me feedback. And then you grow through that and I think, oh, that's been the thing that's preventing me from um, publishing all these times, I do not want to go back and read something and go, "Oh, that's terrible." <laughs> you didn't, you didn't write that. But the truth is, every time I've published, and it's been very few times, it's not a lot, and it's <laughs> definitely damaged my academic career. But anyway, whatever. Um, it means I, I have gone back and read it and gone, "Did I really write that? That's pretty awesome." <laughs> so, so I feel so silly for wasting all these opportunities where I could have published and I didn't. See, I, I I operate on what I call the touch parking method of learning. Yeah. Where I would rather throw ideas out. I know because I learn off other people. Like I'll bounce ideas, I'll soundboard, mm. uh, as opposed to me 
getting an idea or hearing about an idea and then going to every journal that I can find and reading everything, I'd rather yep. have a discussion. And that's why that's why I use like I like conferences and that kind of thing because I'll hear an idea from someone's you know little tiny presentation that you get at a conference, and then I'll go and bail them up afterwards and discuss the hell out of it. Um, And that's how I that's always been how I I learn I learn better off uh, narratives and you know talking with people as opposed to reading. And that's probably why I was a terrible student because I just didn't learn sitting in a in a lecture theater being yeah. talked at for a couple of hours. And I think that there are two two really clear people in mm. the classroom at all times and there are those ones who are those reflective learners who need to go away and think. Yep. And then there's those ones who, and I always say, you don't know what you know until it's coming out your mouth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm actually one of those people too. So yep. I, but I've become, because of the academic role, I've, I've really embraced that reflective learning persona yeah because you know there's a there is an expectation that you'll back up what you're saying with yeah, some yeah. evidence and um and so it's well-formed ideas but there's space for both right yeah. you can you can do that sort of learning out loud um and work you know what you're doing what you do really well and then you can take that away and finesse it with with the literature and reflection and then and then craft something mm. that's really beautiful and that's that's i guess the hope of what i'll do so for example you know the smart goals Mm. podcast that i put out a little while ago i got so much feedback from people like offering other like agreeing with me that they didn't necessarily think smart goals were the best but showing me other ones other methods that i'd never even heard of so yeah now i'm like (laughs) yeah that's sweet like now i want to you know, I could record something about this is what people have told me, but like, no, I want to actually go and try some of these yeah. and see how they work as because I'm a hands-on learner. I can't just read yeah. about it and, you know, say, oh, yeah, this might work or it might not. Like I want to actually try some of them and then maybe record a follow-up about my experience in trying some of these yeah. other methods as well. Would you try some of them with your students? I... Maybe eventually I tend to use myself as a guinea pig and yeah. I do I do that with my powerlifting coaching as well. Like I've, I've not prescribed anything to any of my athletes that I haven't tried myself because yeah. then I know what it feels like. I know how it works. I know what it's meant to feel like. I know what can go wrong <laughs> generally. Yeah. Um, I, that's, that's all part of my touch parking theory is that I, I know how it, how it can go wrong. I know how it can go right. and. Yeah. Then I'll sort of branch out from myself to getting other people to try it, kind of thing, mm. and then I'll record a podcast about it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So we've come full circle back to students again. We have. <laughs> we have. And we well, they're might pretty much to. you know the main focus of life. <laughs> that is true. They are now. Yeah. So yeah. on my on my new adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? I am. I am. It's definitely the change I needed at the right time and I think I'm enjoying it more than I – I knew I would enjoy it, but I think I'm enjoying it more than I even thought I would, which is good. That's so good. That's so good to hear. And we got a good team and, yeah, it's it's been fun. It's been hard and it's been a challenge, but it's been been fun. Yeah. 
it's it's such a it's a tough gig. It's very draining. It's a really tough gig. Yeah, it's frantic. Yeah, and and you can. It's never done. Yeah, I'm never done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's just no such thing as done. It's this, that's how I'm feeling this semester. It's just yeah, and the one thing, thing after that, another. Yeah, and universities are such slow bees. Yeah. So everything takes a year to change, but you're always working on next year while you're teaching this year, and you're preparing next week's lessons while you're teaching this week's lessons. You yep. always, and then you're marking last <laughs> week's stuff while you're teaching this week's stuff and preparing next week's. And it, and it, yeah, you just all and then you know timetabling, and then next year's course outlines, and then demand, demand, demand. And My time management has down. never been so yeah. on point. Yeah. yeah, you have to schedule everything in and use Outlook calendar because if you don't use it, you'll forget because you yeah. won't get that reminder. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I rely yeah. on. I rely on the reminders at the moment. Yes. I'm have like, as long as it's in there. Everyone gets them together at 15 minutes before. No. And everyone gets a around the table and like, oh, everyone's got something on in 15 minutes. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's how I'm living my life at the moment, one reminder to the next. Yeah. Just got to make sure yeah. it goes in the calendar and then I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. But there you go, technology. Isn't that awesome? Is there anything you want to plug or want people to have a look at? Is okay, that IT4OT well, sites still run? The website? So the website's really not okay. because we as a group are, are sort of winding down. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we, we can't feel like our job's done. Yeah, yeah. And um, what we're doing right now is we're in transition with OT24VX became the OTVX. Yep. And then now we're transitioning it to being, and this is this is an announcement, Brock. Oh, scoop. Here. The WFOTVX. Wow. Yep. So we will be enabling WFOT to run it. Yep. Uh, we started last year. We were in our transition year last year. Yep. And it's going to be a World Federation of Occupational Therapists event um, every year. But it may not, it'll be probably just a single event on that World OT Day. And we want to spread the love <laughs> across the year with webinars. That's awesome. Yeah. So you've so, started small, gone international, and now you're taking over the world. Yeah, that's it. Take it over the whole calendar. You can't get rid of us. But we're really excited. That's fantastic. We kind of want installations rather than um, having a 24-hour thing. Yeah, yeah. And we do want to make sure that across the year, so we're sort of thinking every two months at the moment to get going Yep. and la- launching it um, for World OT Day on the 27th of October this year. Fantastic. But then from there going every two months with and then staggering it across the the 24-hour clock so that different people can listen yeah yeah. and it'll be recorded and it'll be captured so that people can listen um asynchronously still free i assume it'll be free and we've got sponsorship through the work journal nice um i think that's something that we ot should really think long and hard about (laughs) it's about sponsorship and getting people to help us we often carry the load financially and physically and mentally mm-hmm. um yet again not asking for help um so i think you know this is a really good good initiative that has gone from strength to strength but it's also a reality check on what's possible for the people who were doing it 
and um, we didn't want to lose that momentum and lose all that goodwill yeah, yeah. That has been shown over the years. So, yeah, so this will be a really great new Next phase. generation. Yeah, that's it. That's exciting. It is, isn't it? That's awesome. Yeah. So what, October 27 should be yeah. the official launch. Yeah. yeah. And, and then stay tuned to Woffet bulletins, etc. I assume for future. Yeah, and their new website, which is going to be launched soon too. Which is, I'm really excited about their new website. It's going to be very modern. Excellent, excellent. That's what we like to hear. Modern in OT, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> not an oxymoron. <laughs> no, well, it used to be a few years ago, <laughs> yeah, but right. nowadays, that's what we like to hear. That's I the gold standard. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure as always, and I'll yes. talk to you soon. Good. Yeah, okay. Bye.